faith and the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinziker, your host for today and the executive director of the Mennonite Inc., a multimedia publication connected to Mennonite Church USA. The Peace Lab podcast is a partnership between the Mennonite and the Peace and Justice Support Network, an organization led by my co-host for this podcast, Jason Boone. Well, so Jason, here we are a couple months since our first Peace Lab episode went live. We've had a little break here. Do you want to talk with people about what we've been doing in that time and thinking about? Yeah, and I can share with you. I mean, wherever I go, people just say, where's Peace Lab at? Where's the podcast? I know, that's a good feeling. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe it's a there. slight exaggeration, but uh, not by much. No, we, I have had uh, people ask, we're just getting used to it. Uh, we love the interviews you're doing on Peace Lab and, and where are you at? And I guess from our perspective, I would say, you know, just the two or three things came up. One was we just ran into some technical issues that were pretty frustrating. I, I know I had some and, and you had some. Yes, absolutely. And not to get to you know, inside baseball on this, but the, the recording software we were using just was unreliable. And we had some guests who I, I just felt so bad for them. Like we had to interview them you know, multiple times to try to get it. And we really tried their patience. And so it came to a point where we were saying, you know, we can't go forward if, if that's not going to be reliable. So that was a big hurdle that we, that we were facing these past months. And I think one of the interesting things we keep thinking about with Peace Lab, uh, as we are now coming back and committing to get some regular episodes into your feed every other week on Mondays, hopefully. But one of the interesting things has just been realizing that, you know, producing a podcast is different than writing an article, which certainly has been my main pedigree coming through here. So hopefully as we keep growing and learning into this, we'll keep tweaking this and you might see some changes here and there to Peace Lab's format. But we want to stay committed to our our main goal of this, which is just to have some good conversations about what Christ-centered peacemaking looks like today in Mennonite and Anabaptist contexts. I think you said it well, and I'll have to uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of just being a little too maybe overconfident with saying I'm going to walk in. I've never done any podcasting before, but you know, if you give me five minutes and then uh, a link to Wikipedia, I can figure anything out. And obviously, that's uh, not the case. So, I had some bumps in the road here, but you're right. The core of what we're doing um, is still good when we're hearing from people and when we're having these conversations about peace that I know Midnight Church USA wants to have it and other people want to have. Yeah, I think that's another important part of Peace Lab that makes me excited to do it is realizing that, that we're sort of talking internally. But when it comes to peace issues, a lot of other faith organizations and, and churches, they're kind of listening in to us. And so in that way, I I'm, I'm continue to be excited about the conversations we have, not just for our own edification, but also knowing that, you know, like it or not, I mean, there's responsibility with, with the legacy we have and our, our history as a peacemaking church, where people look to us and they want to know, well, how are Mennonites processing this? So uh, that's another reason to, to keep Peace Lab going, and it's good to be back. I feel like that phrase, now more than ever, is getting overused now maybe more than ever, but um, it does feel like this is a particular moment when people are starting to ask, what does it mean to be a peace church right now, given what's going on in our world and sort of this pattern of being endlessly at war that we've had for the last few years and now just thinking about how we support each other and the church and in our country as well. I had the privilege of attending Hope for the Future meetings a few weeks ago and leaders of color there did some really important work on trying to define what it means to be a peace church today. And one of the important things they said is, you know, it's not just resisting war, but it's resisting oppression um, in all of its forms and speaking out against racism. 
And so I encourage you to seek that definition out if you have a chance. It feels like a timely conversation. I'm excited to dig back in. It's going to be interesting to me, uh, and I think something I'm discerning as within the Peace and Justice Support Network is this balance of, so we're doing the, try to do the work of Jesus and peace and justice work, and you do that, but then uh, contemporary events, they kind of elicit responses. So it feels like they need responses. And so where is that line for us as a peace church? You know, where are we saying, you know, we're doing, the church is being the church, and we're doing these these things that we're called to no matter who's in power. And then at what time do you have to say no, but you know, the, the moral voice of the church needs to speak to this or speak to that because that's going to happen at sometimes. But uh, on the other hand, you can't speak to everything or you end up just being sort of a, of a microphone uh, and not actually doing the work. So I think this is a, a, a good, a good time for us to be thinking about that balance of, of what does it mean to, to work and, and do the work of peace and justice and also be a, a prophetic voice in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was actually at um, a youth, young adult camp at Rocky Mountain Mennonite camp this past weekend. And we were talking about Jesus's second commandment that you'll love your neighbor as yourself and realizing that in some ways that's a very personal call, but also a public one. And how do we balance those, those things? And how do we discern who our neighbor is in the context where we're working? And, and that's one of the things that's exciting to me about Peace Lab is that there are a lot of different people, both in the church and beyond it, answering that question differently, but growing out of their response to that call from Jesus. And, you know, it's a pretty embodied call. It's a call to kind of enact that love concretely, but hopefully, yeah, centered out of a real, real commitment to kind of listen to God's spirit in the move around us and figure out what that means in each of our own contexts. Uh, that, uh, well said. Uh, I, I agree with that hundred percent. It's almost like uh, we, we the, the church, we end up mirroring culture uh, in, in a lot of ways and just the, the urge, uh, I think, in the larger culture for you have to have this, you have to have a strategic plan. You have to have a, a sort of homogenous approach to things and say, you know, what are you doing? You know, and, and there seems to be pressure on the church. Well, how are we responding as if that has to be, again, like a, like a lock, lockstep homogenous thing? But, but it's not. And, and scripture tells us that, you know, we all have our parts to play. So if Peace Lab can continue to highlight what some of those different parts are, but then maybe we can take take time to step back and look and say, well, what, what's the, the sum of these parts? And a lot of times I think, especially in, in Mennonite Church USA, um, our, the, the sum of our parts is, is great, but a lot of times we don't recognize it or, or we don't step back and say, wow, look at all the different varieties of peacemaking that, that happens through this body. We should celebrate that. Oftentimes we get caught up in trying to identify deficiencies. Well, I'm excited to dig back in. I hope those of you listening are excited to join us on this journey as we figure out the next few phases of Peace Lab. Like we said, we're hoping to debut new episodes every other Monday starting today. And so we hope you'll follow along. And our first conversation here to get us moving back into these regular episodes is with Jamie Pitts and Jamie Ross, who are the co-editors of Anabaptist Witness, a new journal focusing on mission in the 21st century. So that was a good conversation and we're excited to dig into it. All right, well, thanks to you both for joining me here in the Elkhart offices. Um, and just for the sake of our listeners, I know that Anabaptist Witness and editing this piece is one part of what you both do, but tell us a little bit about your other day jobs as well. Uh, this is Jamie Pitts, and I am assistant professor of Anabaptist studies at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. So I teach uh, in the areas of theology and history, and 
um, edit this journal as part of my work. Okay. So. And uh, I also, I work for Mennonite Mission Network um, as an editor for international ministries, so working a lot with board reports, with um, worker prayer letters, uh, with internal publications. Um, and then I'm also assistant for ministries in Europe, so I also work with a lot of prayer letters from our workers serving there and um, helping facilitate their communications with our staff here in the Elkhart offices. Okay, great. Well, yeah, thanks again to both of you for being here to talk about specifically this particular publication. And I wonder, you both have been on board since its genesis, is that right? Kind of. Um, before Anabaptist Witness, there was a journal called Mission Focus, and that started in 1972 with Mennonite Board of Missions. And so Anabaptist Witness um, is an evolution of, of that conversation. Okay, but there was at some point sort of a redesign, mm -hmm. rebrand moment, and that was two years ago, is that right? Mm, three. Three, three years, years ago, because it's 2017 now, yeah. right? And you started in 2014. Yeah. So talk a little bit about why that shift to become Anna Whip, Anabaptist Witness out of mission focus. Mm -hmm. Walter Sawatsky had edited the journal after Wilbert Shank. Um, he started in the 90s, and with his retirement at AMBS, uh, there was a new chance, a new opportunity to assess um, the past, the history of this publication, and then also um, what changes might need to be made, um, addressing changing ways of um, interacting with texts and conversations and social media, um, and through conversations with Mennonite Mission Network, Mennonite Church Canada, and AMBS, um, it was agreed that this publication had a future, uh, and so we had several conversations about what that might look like, and then Jamie Pitts and I were asked to lead that um, conversation with the three agency support. Sure, and so who did you pull into that conversation to kind of think about what this would become? Who are the key stakeholders for this piece? Well, just to add to what Jamie said, the, the conversation started much broader. There, there was uh, a lot of different people, there were a lot of different people at the table um, discussing the potential transition from mission focus to something else and really just discerning whether or not there should be something else. And so once that was, once there was a strong sense of moving forward, it was those three stakeholders that Jamie named that really emerged as the primary stakeholders who would carry the journal forward. So that's, again, Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, Mennonite Mission Network, and Mennonite Church Canada Witness. And those are, we call those our partners council. So they really are supporting agencies uh, who make the journal possible. Okay. Sure. And it is interesting. I mean, I definitely I noticed that mission focus obviously is kind of centered on this word mission. Mm -hmm. And now you've become Anabaptist witness. So that word mission, although it's in your purpose statement, mm -hmm. um, it's not there anymore. And mission certainly is this term that now has this sort of mixed association for a lot of people. Jamie, you actually wrote a piece about this for the Mennonite. So like some shameless organizational self-promotion here. Um, <laughs> But how much did the baggage of that word factor into this rebrand? I don't know that that was our, a primary consideration. I don't really recall us trying to move away from mission language. We certainly recognized that it is uh, a challenge for some people and would be a challenge for some to continue to engage. and changing the language could broaden the audience of the publication. Um, we felt like Witness had a deep resonance within 
the history of Anabaptism with, for instance, the, the martyr tradition. We didn't want to over-highlight that tradition, but it is significant. Um, of course, martyros in Greek meaning witness, so um, that was a significant element. And, and having a, a sense that witness also would capture a broader sense of the purpose and task of the church um, than sometimes people would associate with just using the language of mission. Do you want to add anything to that? Or sure. Um, and interestingly, though, you all have been very intentional about trying to invite um, diverse voices in and putting out broad calls for submission beyond certainly just Mennonite Church USA and Mennonite Church Canada, which would be involved in this process. Um, how have you? Yeah. How have you worked at that? And how are you working? How do you think it? Um, benefits this publication and just our understandings of mission in general to be drawing in, for instance, some of the international perspectives that you've included in here? Well, our mandate is to be a global Anabaptist and Mennonite dialogue on key issues facing the church and mission. So while we're sponsored by three agencies, um, this conversation, this publication would not exist without uh, Anabaptists from around the world and of different backgrounds. We increasingly are finding that individuals who are neo-Anabaptist or who um, would identify with another denomination but have leanings toward Anabaptism or interest in Anabaptism are finding this as a way to tap into um, other Anabaptist networks and communities. And so that's been really exciting. Um, as far as it having global reach and especially being multilingual, um, we realized early on if this was really to be a global publication, um, for the global church, that it, it couldn't just be in English, um, that we had to be able to receive content in other languages, and we had to be able to offer translation, um, at least as able. Um, and so that's something we've really experimented with. We have published in five, four different languages, and I'm working on another paper um, in German. So we've published in Korean, English, French, and Spanish, and um, and working on a paper in German. And so that's been really exciting for us. We are hoping in the coming years to uh, becoming a fully, fully trilingual publication, um, highlighting the languages, um, the official languages in Mennonite World Conference, so Spanish, English, and French. Okay, yeah. And we're, yeah, the, one of the things that you have done that's a very interesting editorial decision is to be multilingual like this. Um, how do you work at editing that content then, given, you know, you, you two are the editorial staff. I, do, I have to confess I don't know how multilingual you each are, but what has that process looked like, the process of kind of reviewing submissions and editing submissions in other languages? Yeah, that's still a work. Jamie's our Kyrgyz <laughs> editor. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> not, not because we receive content in Kyrgyz. Um, you could. Don't rule it, rule it out, right? Yeah, it's possible, <laughs> I guess. Uh, it's uh, That is a process we're still, that's, that's still evolving. Um, we are, we have, we're in the process of translating our calls for submissions into French and Spanish. We had to develop editorial guidelines um, in both of those languages so that our contributors would be able to follow similar um, guidelines as to our, our English content. We, any paper that is received in an other than English language must be peer reviewed in that language as well. And so we have to seek out reviewers who can um, read the content uh, in whatever language is submitted. Um, and then of course we always provide an English translation for content that's submitted in print. Um, and we're starting to work more deliberately in, in the papers that are received in English providing translation, especially into French and Spanish as well. 
Great. And has Mennonite World Conference been a part of this conversation at all? I mean, you're using these three languages that they've sort of framed. How have they helped or contributed to what this has become? Uh, we did consult with Cesar Garcia and others uh, from Mennonite World Conference early on uh, in the process of reimagining mission focus. And so uh, we've invited their voice into the process from the beginning. Cesar himself had an article in our first issue, I believe, and um, we again we've we've just been in contact, uh, making it trying to make it as apparent as possible that we hope that the journal can um, support the efforts of Manette World Conference. So we don't have an official relationship with them, but we do strongly support what they're doing and, and hope that this would be a, a resource that they would find useful. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, at the Mennonite, we're starting to think about this a little bit more. We've sort of been a publication that's focused on a very particular community here in the United States, Mennonite Church USA, but you all really are intentionally global focused, as you said in your purpose statement. And I mean, globalization, internet, social media does make that kind of exchange possible in a way that it hasn't been before. Um, what have been the challenges, though, with kind of seeing that vision grow into fruition um, or really helping it to reach where you hope it will reach? Yeah, I mean, we, in the last three or four years, it has grown so quickly. We, I mean, it's been exciting. Um, clearly, there was. We hoped there was a need for this. We thought there was a need for this. Um, but the response has been a bit overwhelming uh, and the staff time of course growing as quickly as the publication has is, is just not realistic um, and we experimented we were given a lot of freedom to experiment with ways of delivery and way of, ways of interacting and so we went from being just a print publication to also being available on Facebook fully available and freely online uh, without any login um, and uh, also available through through um, uh, emails that are sent out with updates and, and other other online forms. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through is how do we get those different circles, those different ways of receiving um, the content, how do we get those different groups of people to interact? So people who want to read in print, how do they interact with people who are reading it online? Well, that's not really happening. And so uh, we need to think through further how to bring those different circles together um, to contribute to the conversation. One of the, I think one of the, my favorite parts of the conversation that takes place is really behind the scenes. Um, all of our content that appears in print is peer reviewed. And that means other people who have similar backgrounds, who are considered experts in their field, read the content that is submitted anonymously and they're able to provide feedback. We are increasingly putting the writers in touch with individuals they might challenge in the content or who might have some pushback, who want to provide some pushback, and introducing them um, in an email conversation where they can affirm each other's work and also challenge directly each other's work. And I think those interactions um, have been, watching those have been one of the greatest privileges I've had in working with this journal. And are there other, um, well, let's, let's go back to language a little bit. I'm gonna go back to this purpose statement that you all have, which is to be a global Anabaptist to put together a global Anabaptist and Mennonite dialogue um, on key issues facing the church and mission, is that right? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the difference between Anabaptist and Mennonite, which both show up here, and you know, one is in the title and given a little bit more prominence. 
And it's been interesting to me to kind of watch the interplay of these words and when people choose to use which and which feels most inviting to people. Um, so maybe the question is just why Anabaptist? Sure, that's not a question with an easy answer. No, right. <laughs> we, one of the mandates we received as we were in the process of discerning how to develop a publication uh, after Mission Focus was a mandate to see the, the journal as an umbrella for different groups that have emerged or associate with broadly Anabaptist, Mennonite, life, thought, mission, practice. That mandate really, the way of framing that comes from James Crable, who saw that what Mission Focus really did and what a lot of its value was, was it provided a place where Brethren in Christ Mennonite brethren, Mennonites, and others could come together and talk about shared interests in mission, and, and he really strongly urged us to continue to see the journal uh, in that way. So we've taken that as a mandate, and really through the, uh, we've, we've really attempted to to reach out to other kinds of, broadly speaking, Anabaptist churches um, that wouldn't necessarily see Mennonite as their uh, as their primary identity. So in our mission statement, we, we intentionally use that language of Anabaptist and Mennonite mm -hmm. uh, instead of a hyphen <laughs> um, right. or just one or the other because we recognize that some would identify more with the Anabaptist stream. You see a lot of these Anabaptist centers springing up around the world. You see the kind of neo-Anabaptist movements and Anabaptist networks and so forth that might more readily identify with Anabaptists, but you also have people for whom Anabaptists may be more of a historical identity, but they are Mennonites. Um, and we wanted to signal that the journal was inclusive of, of both of those without kind of blurring the lines unnecessarily. And that, that, that uh, conjunction and was really suggested by Melinda Berry, one of our early oh. uh, editorial committee members who thought that would be a helpful way to be inclusive in how we identified our audience. So now having Anabaptist and Mennonite Witness as the title of the journal I think would be a little awkward. So <laughs> Just not very clean and uh, <laughs> not very clean. inviting. <laughs> uh, so we did, I guess we defaulted with the, the, the broader sure. term, term, term there. Um, that is increasingly used today. Right. So. Yeah, actually, one of the things I'm interested in is um, that it seems like in some ways, actually, you know, I talked about this baggage with a word like mission that sometimes is there, but I almost feel like the word Mennonite is actually getting a similar um, kind of ethnic or tribal baggage attached to it at times. Um, and yet it still refers also to people who kind of fall into a number of particular communities, not any one. I don't know if you would have reflections on that, like this particular word and, and what it's come to mean. It's, that's also a complicated, in many sure. ways, political question, too. Mm -hmm. well, I think one of the great things about using witness instead of mission has exactly allowed it for us to have that conversation. Um, individuals who struggle with mission, especially through our blog, have been able to articulate that. Um, and I'm not sure they would have felt welcome coming to a conversation when it was framed under the word mission, mm -hmm. that this has provided a lot more um, space for that conversation. And and one of the things we've been talking about doing in the coming months, maybe a year or two, is having editorial committee members 
um, first and then extending the conversation to other um, mission agencies uh, to talk about what they actually mean by mission. What struggles do they have with that language? Um, what, what is the baggage that we carry? Um, and, and, and how does each agency or entity think about that word? How do they um, understand their engagement with mission? Yeah, and I think in terms of the word Mennonite, um, yeah, I, I teach classes on this. So this right. Is, so this you just want to give me like a 30-minute spiel? Just 30 minutes break spiel, that right. class down. Um, no, but I, I mean, I do think it is, these categories are open-ended and they are categories that we continue to construct through our practice. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't have, and part of what I try to do in the classroom with students is to help them see that what it means to be a Mennonite or to claim a certain kind of, quote, Anabaptist identity is to be involved in constructing that identity. Um, it's to hopefully to, to claim past resources in a responsible way um, and to look forward uh, into the future um, in a way that honors the past without thinking we just have to kind of woodenly repeat what went before which would be impossible because of the great diversity in our traditions Mm -hmm. so I don't know I don't have a kind of five-point plan of what it means to be a Mennonite but um, I do think we through careful historical study such as that which is featured in the pages of Anabaptist Witness often (laughs) uh, we can see what people claiming that identity around the world are doing today, and again, we can responsibly identify similarities and differences uh, without, again, without trying to eliminate the diversity that is really present, that there's no one way to be a Mennonite today. One thing that's been a lot of fun is we have um, individuals who come to us who aren't Mennonite or Anabaptist, but they have um, deep appreciation and respect for the history Mennonites and Anabaptists have had. Um, in global engagement um, with mission. And and so they want to write about a topic they're interested in having a conversation, but also exploring within their, their field of interest how Anabaptism um, has intersected with whatever topic they're hoping to address. And so individuals who aren't Anabaptist are coming to us and exploring Anabaptist engagement in mission. Great, yeah, because it does feel to me, um, you mentioned this neo-Anabaptist movement. Anabaptism is in some ways I don't have stats to quantify this, but it feels like it's having a renaissance moment in a lot of ways. People may not want to claim it as their own, but are curious about it. And so it's, I mean, you've encountered these seekers too, it sounds like. And as you all try to discern what type of themes you want to focus your issues on, your most recent one was on gender. What was the one that came right before that? I forget. What is mission? Ah, evangelism, evangelism, justice, and beyond. beyond. Yes. Right. So, yeah. What does the process of coming up with your themes look like? Currently, we have an editorial committee made up of six individuals, and um, one of their roles each year is to help us discern what themes we should address in coming issues. And throughout the year, of course, um, as we travel to conferences and engage through our own work as a professor and as someone in working with the mission agency, we actively seek out responses or input from individuals from around the world that we meet with through the year. So asking them, what issues do you need addressed? What conversations are taking place that need to be recorded? And um, what conversations aren't taking place that need to happen? And so those are two ways we approach this question. 
some of our coming issues, the, the April 2017 issue is on the Holy Spirit in mission. The October issue will be on suffering and mission. The April 2018 issue, we, we're still discerning, but we believe will be on ecology and mission. And the October 2018 issue will be on multi-directional mission. Oh, so you're planned quite far out, actually. How far in advance do you start recruiting for your features or your articles? I'm already working on papers for October 2018. Yeah. So, so the peer review process takes some time. Sure. Uh, and mm-hmm. ideally, if we stay on top of things, it's about a, a one to two year process for content. Now that you're five issues in, how would you describe the things that are percolating or the growing edges of mission that you're seeing come through? Are there any trends that seem to be emerging? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I do think I see, and Jamie may have, I'm sure Jamie has her own take on this that I'm be glad to hear. Uh, I see there's there's a, an increasing awareness around the world that there are specific issues that have to be taken up by the church, such as global climate change or uh, mass migration, and which of course are related, um, and so forth. And so there is a sense that the church has a task here, um, and I think there's different appetites within different parts of the church about the extent to which that is theologized as mission Um, and I think part of what we're trying to do is provide a forum um, for people who kind of see common themes or issues topics to address uh, to be able to come together and and share what they see as the rationale behind the church's uh, engagement in these kinds of issues Um, uh, with the hopes that, yeah, with the hopes that there would be both a strong ethical passion and direct engagement, as well as uh, a strong theological basis for what the church is doing in the variety of issues that face it around the world. So that's that's just one thing that comes to mind at this point. I don't know if you have mm-hmm. you're gonna take your Yeah, uh, one of the growing edges in missiological conversations, um, broader than just Anabaptist missiological conversations, is the arts and mission. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're n- we're not seeing a lot of individuals reflect on the arts and mission, but make contribution mm-hmm. through the arts. And that's really been exciting to have individuals yeah. submit artwork that interact with themes of Anabaptism and mission, or food mm-hmm. and mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and poetry, a lot of original poetry we've been working with. And so this uh, ability to interact and think about and reflect on, not just through written word, but through these other artistic um, modes. And James Crable, one of, uh, who was on the Partners Council with us, he and Roberta King had done a lot of work, especially helping missiologists think through um, how we engage globally through song. And so this is kind of a trend throughout uh, missiological, missiological circles right now. If I could add one thing to that, which I found really exciting, interesting to think about, um, it's it comes from this this last the last issue that was published that I was the lead editor on, which is this April twenty sixteen. So just to be clear, we trade off on who is the lead editor. Okay. Um, so I work with the April issues and Jamie with the October issues. So. We both work with all the content, but um, we each of us takes a lead on, on every other issue. So 
In this issue, what is mission, evangelism, justice, and beyond, one of the things that I thought was exciting that was emerging and I think is evident throughout uh, our publications is that there does seem to be a kind of attempt. So this this framing of evangelism versus justice or whatever, uh, which is a kind of ancient, um, at least going back a couple hundred years. Right, we want to put those on opposite sides and get a Um, clarity. And then we have this kind of language of holistic mission, which is sort of, okay, how do these pieces fit together? It seems like there's something emerging that's maybe a new way of talking about that. And it was exciting to see in, in the April 2016 issue people from really different theological perspectives, uh, conservative evangelicals and, you know, kind of more, quote, liberal social justice advocates, finding some way of recognizing that holding faith um, at the forefront of who we are as part of our identities is non-negotiable at the same time as uh, an encounter, a vulnerable encounter with others um, that doesn't necessarily have predetermined ends um, is vital to how we do mission and how we see mission. And I do think that it actually goes back to the, I believe, the first essay we published, perhaps, which was um, by, well, sorry, it was in the, it was in the first, the first essay of the April 2015 issue by Marius von Hoogstraten, um, who wrote about the fragility of encounter and I think there's something in that phrase um, that captures something that's happening from my advantage, something that's happening, uh, again, across the spectrum, or this awareness that, again, we don't kind of sideline faith and sharing our faith, and yet there's a, a new awareness of the vulnerability uh, with which we do that. Hmm. Interesting. And this is sort of a moment when... There's been a lot of emphasis on how polarized we are in the church, in our polit—I mean, in the United States especially, in our political scenes, um, and yeah, how hard it's becoming for us sometimes to talk to each other. So it sounds like, would you say that this has been a space of possibility, a place where that's happening across these kind of, you know, traditional versus progressive divides that we sometimes mm-hmm. create in our experiencing? Yeah, I feel like with each issue that. Um, we we have writers who might not otherwise interact a whole lot and within the pages of a print issue you you see that conversation evolve and um that's really exciting we have individuals across whatever spectrums who are sometimes uncomfortable but they come to us and they want to talk about that and that feels healthy Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm where it would be wary of claiming too much that we're somehow well, sure. yeah. have you, the solution you here. You figured out the magic. No. Sure, but, but what but. Jamie has said is absolutely right, and there's mm-hmm. there's conversations happening here that I think are exciting, whether it's direct engagement, which we are increasingly seeing, or kind of themes that are evident across an issue or across issues um, that there, this does seem to be a kind of dialogue that, again, Someone could read this from a certain vantage and think, I can't believe they published this or that. And another person, I can't believe published that. Uh, But, again, it does seem like there's some constructive dialogue happening in these pages and online. Sure. And in some ways, I mean, you function as a peer-reviewed academic journal. You've got longer-form articles. But you also, it seems to me, are doing some creative things that are trying to give other people who might not be traditional academics access to what you're doing. I wonder if you'd talk about that a little bit. How have you 
Because another divide that has often happened is kind of the lay conversations and academic conversations that don't always touch each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a lot of fun, but it's also been difficult because it's difficult to identify our audience. You can't right. be something for everyone, yeah. and yet we kind of are trying to do that. Um, and so in each issue, we've had storytelling, uh, mm-hmm. often by individuals who've committed their lives to international service. They have so many stories to share and so many um difficulties they've encountered that they want to reflect on and we've provided a space for that and then we have a lot of students I think especially um, and recent graduates as well as seasoned academics who are providing content Um, a lot of pastors especially providing book reviews um, and then artists also in the church and so that's been a lot of fun to work across those um, spectrums when it comes to the peer reviews if if it's not academic content then it might not be someone with a PhD doing the review but another pastor or someone who's served in that same location or might have experience with some of the content that's being published. So we really work with a diverse um, group of contributors, but also of readers and um, those who engage with content across our platforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how have you, um, I mean, you mentioned that it's grown faster than you maybe expected. What are other things that have been surprising or interesting or rewarding for you all as you've taken this on? I mean, I think the, the, the most evident aspect of our rapidly growing edge is our online presence and the blog, uh, which we've had a lot of activity on, as well as Facebook. Um, and so it's been exciting to see the kind of reach, as, you know, with the kind of analytics that are available online to see the kind of reach the journal has, uh, to see... The, the comments uh, that come from around the world, people who receive um, our content and, and interact with it, respond to it in different ways. Of course, as we've already talked about, the multilingual aspect of the journal, I mean, that's something that's, that's grown faster, I think, than we had <laughs> anticipated, and it's, uh, it's very exciting, and it does, it does open up the global um, conversation uh, that the journal is trying to help facilitate uh, in new ways. So those are two things that would strike me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would echo the the multilingual aspect. That was something that mattered to me a great deal, is that we don't just provide content in English and we find ways of communicating across linguistic um, barriers. But also it, it's been really... Um, a positive thing to watch that I didn't entirely anticipate is that individuals are really committed to this. They really, really care about the church and younger individuals who some might have expected to be averse to mission want to engage this conversation. Um, we have individuals, not, not a lot, but some who are coming to us and saying, we want to be involved. How can we be involved? Um, volunteering to edit things for us. We have actually a guest editor right now, Sarah Werner, who's done a fantastic job and she has Um, She's been working for several months now with young adults in mission who have engaged things like Yaman and the SALT program. Um, So about 18 to 25 year olds want to reflect on their time in service. And so she has far more blog posts than we can possibly stay on top of right now over 20. Um, And that's been really a fun thing to see happen is that someone wants to see this happen and they're prepared to invest their time and energy into making it happen. So they're committed to the global church and to, to our engagement and mission. Yeah, great. Well, I guess the last question that I would ask you is, you know, partly a self-serving question because we've named this 
podcast, The Peace Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see, you know, so if we're going to fit into this podcast, how do you see peace and mission as connected? And, you know, it's sort of the topic of this April 2016 issue, so maybe I'm throwing you a softball there, but yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I, I, I suppose the concept of mission has to do with the purposes that God has for the church. And so if those purposes, as I think we would see them, uh, involve participating in God's reign of shalom, God's reign of peace, um, then nothing that is missional um, is separated from peace or peace witness. Um, And similarly, as uh, Christians are pursuit of peace must be connected to the, the larger work um, that we are convinced that God is calling us to, um, our communities are calling us to. So um, I think practically speaking, in light of that kind of split that has arisen at least in the last 150, 200 years or so in, in the church um, and has been, uh, that has really arisen in, in the Western church and has been sort of exported around the world, unfortunately um, there's a uh, what we see as I, as I was talking about earlier there's it seems to be a kind of or, or I should say I hope what we see reflected on by, by this new way of talking about mission in terms of you might say a fragility of encounter um, is that some of the the barriers there are broken down and we we could see a kind of healing <laughs> between mm-hmm. Um, the the mission language and practice and the 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 peace language and practice that we would see our, our purpose as one um, and again um, as a participation in in God's reign of Shalom sure and I like it. I like that you pointed out that this is a more modern trend especially in the Western Church which mm-hmm. has sort of become a global product but um, yeah it reminds me of a conversation with Erica Littlewolf about you know in indigenous traditions these things are not divorced justice right. and faith and spirituality are together and yeah. oh yeah and I just to say that we did have a reflection along those lines in our um, our one of our editorial committee members Steve Heinrichs Mm-hmm. Uh, who works with Mennonite Church Canada. Um, he did an interview in our April t- 2016 issue with Patricia Vickers and Randy Woodley, um, to Indigenous Americans, uh, reflecting on some of these issues, how they received some of these issues from white Christians, and how, from their context, some of the, the walls break down between them. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me on this podcast and for conversing and good luck as the publication continues to evolve. Thank you, Hannah. And if people want to find you, where should they go if they want to engage the conversation? Where do they find you? Yeah, um, anabaptistwitness.org and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got for today on this episode of Peace Lab. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Anabaptist Witness and we hope you'll look for our next episode in two weeks wherever you like to find your podcasts. We're on Stitcher and iTunes, SoundCloud, and you can also find us at the websites of the Mennonite Inc. and the Peace and Justice Support Network. Thanks so much for tuning in.